Well, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 21 is our passage this morning. We've been looking at what's happening in, in Pentecost here in the passage, in, beginning in chapter 1 and going in, carrying into chapter 2, where Jews from every different parts of the world are coming into Jerusalem to bring the first fruits of their harvest in order to worship the Lord, to thank God for His gracious provision. And then the Spirit of God descends upon these early believers, around 120 of them, and they begin to speak in tongues, in these different languages that they did not know before, and others are hearing these languages spoken, and they're perplexed. And so now we finally transition over to Peter's sermon during this event. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we turn to you this morning as the one who has sent his Son into the world to die for sinners. Lord Jesus, we turn to you this morning as the one who's paid the penalty for our sins. And we turn to you this morning, Holy Spirit, as the one who applies the work of Christ into our hearts through faith. We pray that you would continue this gracious and powerful work in our hearts, that you would speak to us this morning. We ask that you would come and visit with us as we give our time to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think there is a single week that goes by where I don't feel a sense of urgency or feel a hastening of getting to somewhere or doing something. Now, it's not to say that it's every single day of every single week, but there's certainly moments during the week where I'm filled with a sense of urgency. And hopefully that's not unique to me. Hopefully there's some of you who resonate with that as well, where you're in a hurry to get to somewhere, such as work, or a hurry to get to church on time on Sunday mornings, or a hurry to complete a task, or fulfill a project, or meet someone for lunch, or whatever the case might be. Right? Oftentimes we're in a hurry to get somewhere. Now, I personally, I don't like the tension that often comes with this feeling of sense of urgency, 
But some urgency is good. There are some things that we should be in a hurry for. I'm reminded of the birth narrative in the Gospels, particularly in Luke, when one, an angel from heaven descends and he makes this announcement to the shepherds that the Savior of the world has been born, and then it tells us immediately that these shepherds went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the Savior of the world. Now that's a good kind of hastening, isn't it? To go find Jesus, to turn to Jesus, to look to Jesus. And it is this sense of urgency that I think marks this passage that we've just read. Not just this passage, but from the very beginning of Peter's sermon during Pentecost, and I think all the way to the end of that sermon, I think the entire thing is dripping with this sense of urgency. And I will say that this sense of urgency is a kind of urgency that primarily is targeted towards those who have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even for believers, I think there also should be a sense of urgency as well. So as we turn to the passage, immediately in Peter's sermon, we see this sense of urgency, which takes us to our first heading, which is the last days. So here's this phenomenon happening. These early believers filled with the Spirit are speaking in tongues, and some have said, well, they must be drunk with wine. And Peter gets up, thankfully, and begins to explain and ground this phenomenon in Scripture. He begins to preach and saying, no, it's not that these individuals are drunk with wine. It's only the third hour of the day. In other words, the day's just begun. It's only 9 a.m. And with the cheap wine that would have been available at the time, it's nearly impossible to have been drunk with wine. And then he begins by quoting Scripture. He begins by saying, quoting from the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. As you immediately we see, in the last days, God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. In other words, this is telling us this is the last act. Right? John Calvin had once said that, that we are all actors in the grand theater of God. The beginning of the play is, is all over. That's the Old Testament, that Old Covenant has come and gone. And then we have the intertestamental period where there's no prophetic voice, the period between the two testaments, between the coming of Christ and the period where the last prophet died out. No prophetic voice, the curtain has been closed, nothing to see here, nothing to listen to, nothing going on. And then suddenly the curtain is opened and then begins with the birth of the Savior into the world. And when this Savior, who's come and died on the cross for sinners and rose again from the dead and ascended on high to sit at the right hand of God, we see then this transition into these last days. So moment by moment, as each day passes, we're much closer and closer and closer to the final day when Jesus Christ will return. Hence why there is a sense of urgency. 
these last days are also identified as the Messianic age. And it's called that because Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, has ascended on high, is seated above all things. It is an age that points to Christ's session, as some scholars and theologians like to identify it as. That Christ's session essentially means Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God, where all of his enemies have made his footstool. Where he is seated above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name. It is Christ's session. We think of, a, of, our, of our government, we think of Congress, when we say that Congress in session, what we mean is that our representatives are, are seated and are, are conducting the business of the country. Right? And hopefully on behalf of the country, on behalf of the people. It's essentially what Christ's session means, what the Messianic age is about, that Christ Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and there he is conducting the business of heaven, orchestrating all things according to the counsel of his will, bringing ultimately all things to the glory of God through him. And for us as believers, even though these days are marked as the last days, we need not fear because Christ Jesus is our Savior, seated at the right hand of God, and part of his conducting the business of heaven means that he is also working all things for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. So we have this assurance that even in heaven, during Christ's session, he is still very much actively working in the lives of his people. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 13 says, And to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And the answer is, He hasn't. As superior as the angels are, there is no one that compares to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Seated at the right hand of God, in his session marks the Messianic Age. That, as I said, is marked with urgency. When John the Baptist was preaching, he also came preaching with a sense of urgency and looking to instill a sense of urgency upon those who would listen and heed his message. In, Mark, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent. There's the urgency. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then in verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So here are these people surrounding John the Baptist, heeding his message, marked with a sense of urgency. The king is coming at that point, and for us, the king has already come. So even greater sense of urgency. But here they're coming, and then the religious teachers come. 
and he has some harsh words to them because they're not marked with that same sense of urgency that everyone else is. Because they do not come to repent, they come to observe, they come to see and examine, to see if this man ought to be arrested. Why is he drawing all this attention? And he says, he warns, that the axe is laid to the root of the tree of your life. And if you do not repent now, that tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire to burn forever. And it is this sense of urgency that I would wish for you to have if you have yet to believe in this gospel of Jesus Christ. In Luke 13, another passage that's marked with this sense of urgency. It says there, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there's the point. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The death toll right now, in the earthquake from a couple of weeks ago in Syria and Turkey is around, I think, 50,000. The Bible tells us why we should mourn with those who mourn and we should continue to pray. But Jesus' words in response to this calamity would be the same words that he would say, that he said there in Luke chapter 13, as a, as a warning to the world that when these calamities strike, they're intended to be a wake-up call Repent. Now is the time to repent, or you too will one day perish. These are the last days, and these last days are marked with a sense of urgency. Continuing in the passage, we see one of the signs that marks these last days, and that is, secondly, the Spirit poured out on all. Again, the passage says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. We need to first clarify what he means by all. Does all there means all without exception? In other words, you might remember in the sort of a, the Oprah Winfrey event where she gave cars to everybody who was in the audience. We're like, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, right? It's sort of the same thing. It's like, you get the Spirit, and you get the Spirit, you get the Spirit, that person gets the Spirit, and that person gets the Spirit. But verse 21 actually qualifies what this all flesh actually means. Verse 21 says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those who call upon the name of Jesus in faith and repentance 
will be saved. They are the ones who receive the Spirit of the living God. Now, in concerning this passage, it's easy for us to sort of get bogged down in sort of the phenomenon that it describes here, where it talks about people having visions and people seeing dreams. But we get, we'll get lost in the point of the passage if we sort of anchor ourselves in those details. Because it's intended to point us to the newness of the new covenant, or the newness, or the excellency, or the gloriousness of the messianic age. If you think of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God has always been at work, even in the Old Testament, but the Spirit of, work, the Spirit of God was at work in different ways. Right? Whereas in the past, the Spirit of God would come certainly upon an individual, but the Spirit did not always dwell permanently in the individual. Why, well, case in point, is Saul who received the Spirit of God, and the Spirit also left King Saul as well. Not only that, but the Spirit did not come upon everybody, only particular individuals for specific purposes. But here we see the gloriousness of the Messianic age of these last days, and that is that the Spirit of God is poured out upon anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that the door of the great treasures of of heaven are opened to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And the all on all flesh also means that it, it, it's anyone, right, from young and old, sons, daughters, no matter what social class that the person belongs to, anyone can receive the Spirit of God if they will call upon Jesus in faith. And so what I love about this quotation is that that Peter gives to us in his sermon, taking from the prophet Joel, is that even Joel is preparing his audience, preparing his readers for the newness and the gloriousness of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah 32, this passage also points to the work of the Spirit during the Messianic age. Jeremiah 32, 38 says, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The excellency and the gloriousness of these last days, of this messianic age, is that the Spirit of God comes upon the believer and they are given a new heart, a heart that, that, that hungers for God, a heart that desires to live for God, a heart that loves God, a heart that desires to walk in the ways of the Lord. So here, in the passage, Peter, preaching, says that these are the last days and here's the evident sign that the dam of heaven has been burst open and its living waters have been poured out upon the earth. Not just just to to sprinkle a little bit of water here and there or just just to damp you, but to actually drench those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that this very water of the Spirit becomes 
a wellspring in one's heart as well. That's what John 7.37 tells us. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is making this call to the world, if any man be destitute of the comforts of this life, if any person be bogged down by the weight of calamity and distress and suffering, if anyone be overwhelmed by the guilt of their sin, come and drink from the well that I provide and find satisfaction in me. And what's more is that for those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them permanently through faith in Jesus Christ, is that the Spirit of God becomes this bottomless well from which they can perpetually draw satisfaction from at any moment, at any time, in any season. You need only to drink. And by the way, again, Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This also speaks to outward actions. Those who are filled with the Spirit of God, they show that they are filled with the Spirit of God. So in other words, right, we ought to be able to tell when someone is full of the Spirit and when someone does not have the Spirit because they do not have these living waters flowing out of their hearts. And as an aside, I think in this passage, where it says that the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh, meaning that this Spirit of God can be made accessible and be given to anyone who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think there's a wonderful encouragement here for parents, for us as parents, to continue to train and disciple our dear children because it means that they also can receive the Spirit of God at a young age. Right? Some of you have a, a wonderful testimony where you cannot quite distinguish when exactly you came to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You were raised perhaps in a Christian home. You understood the gospel at a young age. And praise God for that. Because you were spared from committing many sins and many mistakes in your life. Right? I certainly wish I had that kind of testimony because I came to faith much later in life and there are many things that I wish I had not done and many sins against the Lord that I wish I had not done. But you've been graciously spared. And I pray the same for my own children. And I pray the same for all of our children who are in our church that they might be spared from making many sins and making many mistakes because of unbelief. So the encouragement that they too can receive the Spirit of God at a young age. In Celestia, Poland, in the early 18th century, there was a revival. And strikingly, it began with middle-age, middle, middle school-aged children who were praying together and singing throughout the day in intervals while their parents encircled them and they watched with tears. One of the gloriousness of the new covenant, of the new of the messianic age, is that the Spirit of God can also inhabit young children as well. 
And that is why we seek to train them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Titus 3.5 says that he has saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Another sign in the Messianic age is prophesy or prophesying or prophecy. Whatever you want to call it, I don't really care. But it says that in these last days, your daughters and sons shall prophesy, have dreams and visions. I agree with, with Calvin here who says that this speaks primarily to understanding, to having spiritual wisdom. So think again, Old Covenant, Old Testament, not everybody, not this incredible level of understanding was given to everyone, but select individuals, perhaps the priests, but especially the prophets, had this incredible understanding of the Word of God. But now, the newness of the Messianic age is that Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, anyone who has the Spirit of God dwelling in them, can have the spiritual wisdom and understanding to know the Lord. Jeremiah 31, 34, I think confirms this, where it says, and speaking, by the way, again, to the excellency of the new covenant, the messianic age, it says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. One of the things that distinguishes the new covenant between the old covenant is that the church is made up of people who know the Lord through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody has the same level of understanding as the other person. And that's because one's comprehension and understanding is increased through a diligent and even a ferocious study of the Scriptures. I love Psalm 1 because I think Psalm 1 gives the Christian this, this vision for the Christian life. Where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord, or the word of God, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Right? That kind of tree does not need to fear about having the axe laid to its root and being cut down because this tree is bearing good fruit because it is rooted in the Word of God. Because it is given to the study of the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the, spring, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What helps us to understand the Word, understand who God is, is the Spirit of God. Apart from the Spirit, you can be the most learned scholar. 
You can do all the studying that you can do and studying the scriptures. You can know the original language and everything else. But if you don't have the Spirit of God, it's not going to mean anything. You're not going to understand the Word of God as it was meant to be understood. And how do you know that you understand the Scriptures? Through application. Those who apply the Word of God show that they understand the Word of God because the Word of God demands that your life be changed. Compels the person to live their life in imitation of Jesus Christ. So through the Spirit of God, we're giving understanding of who the Lord is. And we can grow in our understanding of who the Lord is. The passage also speaks to direct access. It's, as it talks about sons and daughters prophesying, seeing visions and dreams, this is not intended to be prescriptive of the Christian life. In other words, it's not telling us that this is exactly what you expect in the last days and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will have visions and dreams and so on and so forth. That's not the point. But the point is that the newness of the new covenant of these last days is that those who believe in the Lord Jesus have direct access to the Lord. Again, think with me for a moment. Before the coming of Christ, who was the one who had direct access to the Lord? Right? You could say the priest in a way because he was the one who went into the Holy of Holies to minister before the presence of God on behalf of the people. But more than that, it was select leaders. It was men like Moses. It was the prophets who had direct communication with the Lord, where God would speak to them, and they would go on to speak to the people. But the newness of the Messianic age is that now anyone who has the Spirit of God has direct access to the Lord. Ephesians 2.18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that we can always go to the Lord. We can pray, and we can ask, and we can plead, and we can beg, and we can cry out to the Lord, and we can honor the Lord, and we can worship the Lord at any place, at any time, at any moment, because through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his people now have direct access to the throne of grace. Something that wasn't always available, but now is through Jesus Christ. We don't need to provide a sacrifice in order to draw near to God, for Christ himself became the sacrifice. We don't need a priest to intercede on our behalf because Christ Jesus became for us our high priest and remains so as the one who continues to intercede in the heavens on our behalf, conducting the business of heaven. We don't need a priest like they did in the olden days to go before the presence of God out of fear of standing before the presence of God because Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, adopted or made adoption possible for all those who believe in him. We don't need to keep the presence of God hidden behind a curtain separating the presence of God 
and separating the presence of sinners because Christ Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has torn the curtain that our sins have placed there because of our sins. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. So then given that these are the signs of these last days where people, those who believe in the gospel, have direct access to the Lord, can communicate with God through prayer, can receive his word through the written word, Therefore, the last days are marked with a sense of urgency that leads, lastly, to repentance. It's kind of a, not kind of, but it is sort of a stark description of this day of the Lord that Peter is quoting here from the prophet Joel. I mean, it's certainly there's some goodness there about the Spirit coming on all those who believe that there is salvation, but it talks about these wonders in the heavens and, the, and also on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, describing this great day of the Lord. And the context in which that passage rests even paints an even much more grim picture of this day of the Lord. And I want to take you there for a moment. You might be like, why would you want to take us there if it's that bad? But there's some good stuff in there as well. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, that all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And the answer is no one. But then we come to the light shining in the darkness. Verse 12, it says, Yet even now, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not return 
or relent and leave a blessing behind them, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. A great and powerful day is this coming day of the Lord when He will certainly bring His people up with Him to reign eternally with Him in glory, but also a day of gloom and darkness and terror for those who are enemies of Christ, for those who fail to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, return to the Lord your God. It's a story of a man named Mr. Thorpe who went to hear the, the, the preaching of George Whitfield. And upon listening to his sermon, he goes back with his friends to a bar. And they begin to, to, to mimic George Whitfield's mannerisms, each taking turns. And then it was Mr. Thorpe's turn. And she, he stands up on the table. And he says, get me a Bible. So they give him a Bible. And he opens the Bible to any passage that it will open up to. And he opens up to Luke chapter 13, verse 3, which is a passage... He read earlier. He opened the Bible. He read it out loud. He came to that verse and he said, Except ye repent, the passage says, you shall all likewise perish. And immediately, as he read that passage, his conscience was touched. And he, he became increasingly guilty. And he begins to cry out, God, forgive me, I've committed an awful sin. And he begins to cry out, he immediately closes the book. And he says, oh, that perishing, that perishing. How can I repent? And his friends are agony and say, come on, don't be a coward, stop whining, be a man, Mr. Thorpe. And he says, how can I? I don't dare, my sins, oh, my awful sins. I've grieved the Holy Ghost and perhaps he's forsaken me. I cannot rest until I am forgiven. I need to find that Mr. Whitfield. Such is the power of the Word of God, that it can pierce the heart of man and put in him a sense of urgency to run to Christ. And it's the kind of urgency that I would want you to feel if you have yet to turn to Jesus. We don't know when that last day is coming. It could come at any moment. But that is why you should repent now and turn to Jesus in faith before it is too late. Peter will go on to say later on in his sermon, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Why does he say that? Because his generation, and every generation that came after him, and even this current generation, there's nothing but, not just nothing, but it is characterized by wickedness and sin and evil, and for all of these things, the judgment and wrath of God is coming. So he says, save yourself. Before the great day of the Lord comes. And by the way, again, the Lord says, Return to me with all your heart. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is a gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. 
what assurance that as anyone have that if they come to the Lord in repentance that they will actually be accepted. It is on the gracious character of God. He identifies himself as merciful and gracious and abounding and steadfast love. That is why we can go to him in repentance in the first place. And you might say, well, I am a sinner. And Jesus would say, no matter. Come to me anyway, and I will receive you. And you might say, well, I've committed great sins in my life. Sins for which I am ashamed of. Sins that I regret. And Jesus says, no matter. Come to me, and I will not cast you out. And you might say, well, it's not the, the, the quality of my sins, but it's the quantity of my sins. It's that I've committed many sins in my life. Why would the Lord receive me if I turn to him now? And Jesus says, no matter, return it to me, and I will receive you. And you might say, but I have many shame. I have filled with so much shame, so much regret, with so much remorse. I've hurt so many people in my life because of my sins. And Jesus says, no matter. Come to me, and I will not cast you out. Turn to Christ. Now, for my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, they said, we do not fear this great day of the Lord because we are safe and resting secured in Christ. But what word can I encourage you with as we consider this passage and the urgency that marks this sermon that, that Peter begins to preach? My encouragement to you is to continue now, this moment, not to wait or linger, but to continue to turn to Christ. Are you feeling despondent? Turn to Christ are you feeling anxious, worried? Turn to Christ. Are you struggling with sin? Turn to Christ. We have been given direct access to the throne of grace, but there may be some of you who are standing there at the entrance and you are lingering. Why do you linger? Why do you linger? There's no need to linger. It doesn't matter. If your sins are causing you to linger there at the entrance, even if you spent an extended period of time not having communion with Christ through his word and prayer, you wonder why would he receive me now? Don't linger at the entrance, turn to Christ. Perhaps it's the busyness, the distractions of your life, the things that are in the world. Don't linger at the entrance. Turn to Christ. Don't wait another moment. Don't wait another hour. Turn to Christ. Turn to Him as the well of your contentment, the well of your satisfaction, the well of your strength, the well of your encouragement. Don't linger another moment. Turn to Christ. George Whitfield pleaded, and I make the same plea to you as well. 
O ye believers, my heart is enlarged towards you. Look to and live much on the blessed Jesus, and then you will live to and act for him more and more. Be thankful for what you have received, but be looking out continually for fresh discoveries of his love and fresh incomes of his heavenly grace, so you are called to behold the Lamb in glory.